0: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Creaky Share Film Podcast, the show where we discuss all things film, from embarrassing turkeys to box office bombs, from cats to Cutthroat Island. Any of you seen Cutthroat Island?
1: I have seen Cutthroat Island. What are you? Are you? Are you, are you saying that's a turkey? It's that was a box, a office box.
0: box office bomb. Yeah, yeah. It's not a turkey. Cats is a, a turkey. turkey. Um, yeah.
2: Uh, Michael, can, when we when me and Bill thought that we might have to do this episode without you, I tried to write my own little introduction. Would you like to hear oh, it? Oh,
0: yes, please.
2: Um, let me tell you, it's not good. Um, hello, and welcome to Creaky Chair Film Podcast, the film where we talk about films old and new, um, from history films to mystery films.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: And my two examples <laughs> for a history film... Um, <laughs> From talk about intolerance and Scooby-Doo, Monsters Unleashed.
0: Nice. Um, no, I
2: like it. Mystery and history. Yeah, Great. Yeah,
1: it's, yeah. I tried
2: to think of some others, but it's way more difficult than I thought it would be. So hats off to you again, Michael. I'm
0: well,
1: really, really happy, Michael. See
2: you. Yeah, yeah, me too.
0: Well, you, thank you. Um, you you've you obviously gone for the link with our what we're going to be talking about today, which is that we're, we've finally gotten around to doing our Creaky Chair guide to Historical Epics. Uh, so we're going to be talking about some of you know our top picks, some of our favourite historical epics. So there's centuries worth of history to choose from. Um, I, however, went for a link with our first piece of news. Um, so let's uh, yeah let's 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 just go straight for this news before we get into talking about historical epics. We normally wouldn't do this on a on a guide to episode but there's been some shocking developments in the film world hasn't there but we can't let go undiscussed so uh, unbelievable what's what's been going on what's been going on
1: well so warner brothers have basically shelved a completed film so they spent 90 million dollars on a film called Batgirl, about Batgirl, um, starring Leslie Grace, Michael Keaton, Brendan Fraser, and J.K. Simmons, and they'd finished shooting it. So it was deep in post-production. It had gotten so far that they were showing it to test audiences. So it's basically finished. And, you know, you get test audiences. They say what they like and dislike. And um, after this, um, the the test audiences, they decided to shelve it, not reshoot it, not re-edit it, not shelve it for a, a bit of time to rethink the release strategy. It's never going to see the live day. It is a tax write-off. They've worked out that they can make more money completely burying this thing, never releasing it, and guaranteeing it's never released officially, obviously, could get leaked. But they'll get a tax write-off. And how much
0: I, do we know? Do we know how much of that 90 million they will see back?
1: We don't, but it must be a significant amount if they thought it's got more chance of making, say, 50 million with the tax write-off than it did from getting released on cinema or streaming. It was going to be released streaming originally, so on HBO Max, and they've decided not to. Now, all sorts of stuff's come out now. Um, even Limmy on Twitch, he's a big... Um, he's, a, he's a Glaswegian comic that um, I'm a big fan of. So Sam, he's come out and uh, he, he was saying that um, the Glasgow Council actually paid 150000 to the um, production for it to shoot in Glasgow. So they've lost a lot huh? of money now. Um, and now it's coming out that Warner Brothers has also, this links back to what Sam was saying, they've also um, completely shelved a completed Scooby-Doo animated adventure. What? Um, which? Right. Which, yeah, Now 45 it's serious. Million, 45 million written off. That's never going to see the light of day.
2: I, I just, I, I don't understand. And like, obviously, I'm not a high-powered studio executive, in case you've not noticed. Like, I don't understand how... They can get to the point of like having a fully completed film, and then be like, "Oh, this is garbage!" Like, how at an earlier stage does somebody not throw up their hands and go, "Hey, do you know this scene where like Brendan Fraser just sets a kid's head on fire or whatever might happen?" Like, why at that point is no one kind of going like, "Hey, mm, having to think this might not work"? Because I feel like especially big blockbuster superhero movies, are like we talked about. Um, on our last episode about Dr. Strange, Bill, like they're all films that are made by committee and it feels like there's a hundred people all throwing their hats into the ring for it. How are one of those many people that obviously have worked on many of these kind of films, not just wading in and going, right, this is going to be an issue further down the line. How do they let it get to this point where they're showing it to test audiences and now they're like, this might be a bit of a turkey boys. Like,
1: I don't I, get it. I. I don't think it is possible, especially as you say, with with a film that will have so much, so many cooks, um, and and so much meddling. I now think because it's also been announced, like Warner Brothers Discovery is now merging with HBO Max, um, and I think this is a, it, I think this is boardroom shenanigans. I think there's there's been some sort of. Succession style coup and <laughs> and and Batgirl and Scooby Doo and a bunch of other content as well, like um mid budget content, which which I'm not personally a fan of, but is very profitable. And I'm not talking films now for mid budget content. I'm talking like you know uh World's Greatest Chiropodist and stuff like that. Um is, is oh, getting canned. It. Yeah, it's one of your favorites, yeah. um, and and that's getting canned as well. And I think it's this massive strategy wide rethink they've done. And they've they've worked out that Batgirl, Scooby Doo, um, all this other, all these other, like I, I was reading somewhere that it's close to now um, eight hundred and fifty million dollars um, worth of content is getting wiped out, which is a staggering amount. That's nearly a billion dollars, um, and and it's the victim of this this strategy rethink that um, Warner Brothers, Discovery, and HBO are are coming up with. But but what I'm worried about, and the, the worrying thing on this is. Yeah, okay. This strategy, whatever you think? but it's resulted in films that are completed, not getting released, and it being more profitable for them to do that. And I think that's a real shame because, yeah, okay, Batgirl was probably going to be pesh, but I'd like the chance to see it. Yeah, okay, I might, probably wasn't going to see it, but you know, I'd, I'd like it to be out there. You never know. You mm. know, it's part of like the filmmaking just and and audience fraternity of like, look how many funny. Yeah jokes there are about Morbius and and just other turkeys. You know, Michael mentioned Cutthroat Island and Cats. We're depriving ourselves of these, potentially, and or, best case scenario, depriving ourselves of cult classics. I bring up Blade Runner. You know, imagine if Blade Runner had been made now in amongst all these shenanigans, and it was going through similar sort of corporate tomfoolery at the time, but it ended up getting released in different versions. We've got director's cuts. This film is never going to see the light of day officially.
0: Well, um, you, well yeah. I challenge that because I mean, you know, this the ones never going to stay hidden forever. Well, it'll become a kind of a mythic film won't it? that will eventually be leaked out and so someone will yeah, you will see think, it, but, think,
1: but you won't see it in the way the director's even sort of intended. It won't be the effects won't be finished, the dub won't <laughs> be done, it won't be mastered, it won't be graded. You know, it Films like Blade Runner and, and even like kind of bootleg prints of, of you know, the Highlander 2 uh, renegade edition, stuff like that, that that was actually kind of like kind of low end released on physical media. This this isn't going to be that. And I think it's a worrying, my, the worrying precedent for me is these tax write-offs. I don't fully mm, understand how they work, but if studios have worked out that it is better to... Just shelve these things and get the tax write-off rather than doing limited releases or even streaming releases. I think that's really bad news because they can they can take more puns and then just not – we'll never get to see
0: them. We spoke about this uh, the other week, but I do think that I see your concern. Firstly, I would just make the maybe flippant point that – I, as a strategy, I like the strategy of studio deciding we're not going to release shit films. Uh, I think that's probably a good <laughs> good um, tactic. Michael can um, get fully behind that. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I just think there'll be so many... If you're a not even a big, you know, a kind of up-and-coming star in one of these films, or you're, you know, more the the agent, the agent of these. I don't know how it works, but I imagine they probably have, if you are uh, a kind of three to five-year, maybe longer plan for someone who, that they manage a star or director or whoever, and they probably think, right, well, you you know, you make your name on this film, and then the next film, we'll we'll move up to this, and then maybe in a couple of years, we might be talking some sort of Oscar-worthy material. Who knows? They're not going to stand for, You know they're taking a risk on a film that they could just give a give a year out, and then it just you know there's an opportunity there's an opportunity cost there that they're still going to they're still going they're still going to get paid, and for someone like Michael Keaton who's made his career, for someone like Michael Keaton that doesn't matter his name you know he's already a name, but you know if you're an up and coming actor who you know maybe in your twenties or thirties who You know, you can't afford to take the chance on doing a film that is just going to be shelved at the behest of a studio. I don't think it's.
1: I'd argue Leslie Grace because we've mentioned her on this podcast now, and she's all over. Like she's done better Mm -hmm. out of Batgirl now than. But it's not even. It's not even actors.
0: It will be directors. It will be like cinematographers. Anyone who's you know basically the. The careers are made from reputation isn't it and what you do the, pro- the project you do this year you know get, gets you the project you do next year and so on
1: the most important thing for for union guys in america is just they get paid like yeah i know the director thing yeah i totally take that but for most other film roles you just you're just taking the money and then yeah they will build into um, contracts they'll probably build in a, a non-release clause that you get paid a little bonus or whatever People will take that. It's so doggy eat dog they will take that. And if this becomes a precedent and this becomes a way of studios ensuring... I, mean, I know you say, like, I'm glad studios aren't releasing shit films. You should be saying, I'm glad studios aren't making shit films. This won't stop them making shit films. This will, this will actually cause them to make more shit films because there's far lower risk. There's far lower risk. They've got. They've basically got this net that protects them.
2: Yeah, and like, I think that net is the real issue for me because, like why because I think what uh, I would ideally like is that there was a there was some kind of checks and balances in earlier on where people would sort of say like hey this script is garbage these actors are garbage this isn't going to work blah 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 let's change this and make this a better film but the idea that like those they're obviously kind of like not doing that early on they're waiting until the very very end and going like is this shit it is shit okay let's get rid of it because we'll be fine financially it's such a garbage way of doing things it feels like I, I don't know. It just feels like a really galling way to. It's turning cinema into kind of like a business, which is I know it already is like a huge multi-billion-dollar business and so forth. But I kind of feel like I quite like it when those machinations are hidden behind the scenes, and this is just really bringing it to the forefront of like, yeah, we don't really care about making films; we just care about making money. Well, that's it. I like it really to see bit, it's galling, I like I to
1: see you know the end result. This, this this shit film. It's embarrassing for everyone. But at least this is out there, and you've done it, and gone right. Okay. Whereas, the, whereas what I can see here is, you know, this could lead to the thing of them going, right, we've got this IP, we've got Batgirl. She's a relatively known character. Let's make three different versions of it, three all lower budget, um, and we'll see which one sticks, and two of them we won't release. Yeah. That, that, that is possible with this, if this precedent carries on with it. And that I do think it's I was... worrying. I do think it's worrying. And I think it's, it, it's becoming, because of this this streaming model, of releasing cinemas and streaming and i was initially like during the pandemic i was thinking this is this is a good thing you know this is a good thing keeping cinemas going but i think now we're seeing the effects of it of it of it getting taken the piss out of basically and Mm -hmm. and you know unfortunately for all the people that worked on Batgirl, that's that's what's happened
0: well
2: sorry all right Sorry, I just had one final. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday about this, and he's a huge Batman fan, absolutely loves Batman. And his favourite Batman is Michael Keaton. And we were talking about the idea, this is a conspiracy theory that people are going to trace back to this podcast, so get ready. Um, we were talking about the idea that maybe what they've done with the Michael Keaton's Batman, because obviously he's stepping back into the cowl being Batman again after all these years in Batgirl, We're discussing the idea that they've completely like fucked his character. They've completely kind of like turned Michael Keaton's Batman into something that he isn't. And the test audiences were just so livid about what they'd done to Michael Keaton's Batman. They were just like, we can't (laughs) put this out in the world because we're going to get absolutely torn to shreds by all the Batman fans. So it's not been shelved because it's garbage. It's It's been shelved because they've made a terrible decision with Keaton's Batman.
1: Counter-conspiracy. Is it Brendan Fraser fans? (laughs) They couldn't accept that Brendan Fraser's playing a pyromaniac an arsonist and they were just like no not see the light of day Brendan don't do it the crazy. cinema
2: was literally divided yeah, into like it. J.K. Simmons fans <laughs> that were like wait is he not playing J. Jonah Jameson from Spider-Man <laughs> Keaton fans that were like that's not the Batman I remember <laughs> Brendan Freight is just a perfect division they were like poor, we can't
1: poor, fuck up the this many this carnage I was like, we can't release this
0: the world's fragile enough <laughs> as it is, <laughs> yeah, this is yeah we're this just getting out century. of the pandemic just be too much violence <laughs> <laughs> right, let's let's move on. Um, so, we will, yeah, I'm sure, continue to watch as this story unfolds. <laughs> well, just one sentence. How the fuck is the flash
1: still getting made? Ezra Miller is literally running a cult from Miami and on the run from police, and it's still slated for release. Ah, and, uh, unbelievable! Unbelievable.
2: Anyway. Well, the test audiences, they're like, do you know what I want? I want <laughs> Ezra Miller to be dangerous. So Ezra Miller's actually fulfilling his IP, so...
1: There you go. It's, it's all those just, test it's audiences, incredibly man. incredibly scary. <laughs> Got a lot to answer for.
0: Right. Uh, so this is supposed to be uh, 15 minutes in our guide to historical epics. Um, so we, we're going to turn to that. And important, I think, to categorize at the top, uh, or to clarify, rather, the category of historical. So uh, what we've decided to go for here is anything pre-20th century so that's just an arbitrary line that we've drawn to distinguish what historic means so that means that there's not going to be any world war one films no world war two films nothing from vietnam nothing from the civil rights movement or the russian revolution or anything like that we've just decided that you know pre-20th century is suitably historic um also historical means that it must have some basis in historical facts now for some films that's going to be more more a- uh, accurate than others um, but something like the film must have actually happened, so nothing that strays into fantasy, so that would rule out, for example, Jason and the Argonauts. Um, can we also say that it probably rules out the Ten Commandments? Do we want to get controversial? <laughs> I've, I presume none of you are going to be talking about uh, Noah. <laughs>
2: Uh, do you know what I've actually? I prepared an extra one just in case you didn't want any biblical ones. So don't worry, I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll change tack now.
1: Well, shit! I've got New
0: Testament. <laughs> Perfect. Um, but what do we mean? Just shortly, short thoughts from each of you. What, what like what do we mean by epic? What, what does is it just length or what you know? What's uh, it's quite um, a hard I, term to uh, define.
2: I personally feel like defining epic as a certain length is very kind of like, it takes out a lot of films that are really great because i personally feel like epic just needs to be like epic in scale, epic in scope. And I think that can be the story they're telling or the like specific character that it's about, or, um, you know, the way that a story is told sort of thing. I don't, I don't think necessarily that epic needs to be, it has to be over like three hours long, despite the fact that both of my choices are incredibly long in length. (laughs) I don't feel like Epic needs to just feel epic. You know, you can watch a twenty-minute short that feels epic, but it isn't obviously super long.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with Sam. It's it's more like you know the the length of the film and um, you know the wideness of the shots uh, are more kind of the symptoms, not the cause. It's 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 epicness in scope, and it can be. You know, it can be smaller stories, but they're always told against these huge backdrops of of you know um, great times. You know, these they're changing times, and and it can be yeah quite personal, simple stories enveloped in these in these um, huge undertakings, or it can be massive spans of almost documentarian um, um, mm. stories about these these huge upheavals. But yeah, that, that's that's the thing. It just it just seems that because there's so much to tell, usually these films are about 3 hours long and I'm, uh, I'm here for
2: that. I've just thought of another example that I would have probably wanted to talk about but I'm not sure, that kind of the um like original passion of the Joan of Arc film that I think Carl Theodor Dreyer did like back in the 20s and it's like a really small and like intimate film with like loads of intense close-ups and it all takes place in this one room. It's like almost like a theatre piece it's so kind of small and enclosed but the story and the performance feels so large scale and it's obviously about a character Joan of Arc who is so massive and I think that's a perfect example of like it is an epic movie but not in the traditional sense of you know what you'd traditionally expect to find if you googled best epic sort of thing
0: yeah mm. yeah well put all right well Sam you're going to start us off uh we've, we're going to pick two each um and Sam what was your first choice
2: obviously my probably my favorite epic historical film of all time is Buster Keaton's The General you know an epic about the American Civil War but a I don't know if that actually physically fully properly happened and also I've already talked about it so I need to move on I need to
0: on episode one I believe
2: episode one yeah um so you know we don't want to we don't want to repeat ourselves here do we Um, So I just wanted to start my first film choice um, with this uh, definition. I know we've obviously been talking about what the definition of epic is, but I googled epic just to get a definition, and I found this, which I think quite nicely sums up the film I've chosen to do first. Epic definition, an exceptionally long and arduous task or activity, um, which I think really aptly describes the experience of watching my first pick, which is Napoleon, um, which is Abel Gantz's five and a half goddamn hours Napoleon biopic that he made in 1927. Um, I know we shouldn't get into any kind of juvenile length measuring competitions, that's not what we're about here, but if we were, I think out of all the films people have chosen today, five and a half hours is probably the the lengthiest length that we're ever going to length today. Um, so yeah, Abel Gance, um a French filmmaker who made a lot of very long, very epic movies, but Napoleon is arguably the longest and most kind of epic of the movies that he made. It was a bit of a kind of passion project. Um, it was a film that was thought lost for quite a few years. It was obviously <laughs> back in the nineteen twenty seven was just on the cusp of the kind of um, end of the silent era and start of the talkie era. So someone coming out with a five and a half hour biopic on Napoleon wasn't exactly met with incredible plaudits so as a result the film kind of got a bit lost and got a bit kind of like torn apart and taken everywhere and the silent historian Kevin Brownlow spent like 20-30 years of his life slowly but surely piecing together the film to the version that we have now that was recently re-released by the BFI is arguably kind of considered the um, most full and complete version of the film Um, and it is an absolute fantastic spectacle Um, So yeah, it's five and a half hours long. So obviously there's loads and loads and loads of incredible stuff in it that's worthy of comment. This film does a really great thing that I love of like, I don't know anything about Napoleon. My French history is lacking my Napoleonic history other than jokes about him being small. I don't really know that much about him at all, but this film does an incredible job of like showcasing the beginnings of Napoleon's life in a genuinely interesting and engaging way. So I remember when I came out of it, I did have that, um, I don't know if you guys have the same experience, but if I watch a film that is quite historical, I almost come out of it being like, do you know what, I'm going to Wikipedia that and do some more reading, I want to learn more about what I've just learned about, and that very much did this for me, despite having just spent five and a half hours in a cinema watching um, his life <laughs> unfold, so it's a silent movie, which again, I know won't be everyone's cup of tea, but well oh, my finest cup of tea. Um, so it makes incredible use of the scenery, the camera work, and it's just every frame is a painting. It's absolutely gorgeous. And um, so there's a couple of scenes that I just wanted to kind of just talk about that kind of encompass this idea. Um, so spoiler alert for anyone that's going and playing on watching the film. Um, there's a revolutionary journalist in the film that's kind of bit pro, bit anti napoleon Jean-Paul Marat, who's played by the avant-garde writer, Antonin Artaud, who... Anyone that's done an A-level drama degree might recognise. That character, unfortunately, um, passes away and the staging of the aftermath of his murder where he's um, stabbed is literally framed like a, um, a painting that I, when, you, when you see it, you kind of go, that looks like a painting, but it's actually directly designed to emulate a painting, the um, death of Marat by Jacques-Louis David. Um, and it really is a grotesquely beautiful image, which is something that Silent Movies do incredibly well, obviously, to kind of like showcase all the stuff that going on that's going on that they can't talk about. Um Gans compiled huge amounts of research for this film, and he'd used loads and loads of engravings as um sort of like inspiration for how he wanted to frame certain f- scenes as well. Um, there's also an incredible scene where a load of g up French lads sing the Marseillais, the song they sing in that famous scene in Casablanca. Um, For this scene, Gantz asked the extras to sing the revolutionary anthem 12 times in a row just to get them so hyped and so G'd up. And the the scene is really, really incredible Um, because the camera is tracking just above all of these people as they're singing and it just captures the kind of like passion, the beauty of them as they just sing and talk and yell this song out for the 13th time. Um, Gantz also kind of revolutionized a lot of like camera work. because obviously it was, what he wanted to do was kind of like take the spectator, make them more of a player in the action than just standing back watching a film. A very kind of, they didn't want them to have that static experience, wanted them to kind of be immersed in it. And handheld cameras obviously weren't really a reality back in the 20s. So what he did was he, um, for scenes where there's lots of horseback riding and lots of action going on, he used these um, wide angled lens cameras um, that was, that he'd put on cars to keep pace with the chase sequences. So he'd have these cameras attached to cars going along beside them. And also this, this there's a really funny photo I saw um, where he's got a camera like attached to a horse. So there is scenes of these epic kind of like drives off into battle shown from the perspective of an actual horse um, years before GoPro as well. So that's really, really exciting. Um, But yeah, the, There's obviously loads and loads of great things about this five and a half hour epic, but the start of the film and the end are two incredible bookends for it. It starts off with a young Napoleon um, and there's this incredible scene at the start where he's at his um, boarding school as a 10 year old boy and they're having a snowball fight, all of of the lads having this snowball fight. And it starts this beautiful kind of visual scenery, but also this great foreshadowing of who Napoleon's going to be in the future. Um yeah and the the passage climaxes with a barrage of just imagery being hurled at you, all these lads having this incredible snowball fight, images layered on top of each other over and over and over and over and over again. And It just gets frenetic and intense and incredible to the point where you're so geed up you feel like you're watching a battle scene. I mean, you are watching a battle scene, it's just it snowballs as opposed to musket fire and um, so that's the start, and the end is, oh incredible it's justifiably famous and it's genuinely jaw-dropping when I first saw it in the cinema it's nothing like it's like nothing I've seen before it's the um triptych finale so here's a quote from Abel Gans that really kind of sums up why he made this decision um I felt that I lacked space in certain scenes because the picture was too small for me even a big picture was too small for me so at the end of the scene end of the film sorry um Bonaparte's ragged troops are marching off into battle and Napoleon gives them this big old rousing speech where everyone's like, do you know what? Let's get G'd up. Let's go fight. We're going to do this. And just as he kind of gets to the climax of his speech, the, the single frame that you're looking at expands out into three separate frames. It's this like three <laughs> trio that spreads off into this incredibly massively wide panorama that encompasses every single thing that you could possibly see. Um, It was achieved by stacking three cameras on top of each other, one pointed to the left, one pointed straight ahead and one pointed to the right. And it's just this absolute, I'm trying to think of the right word and I'm going to use this word that I don't think really suits, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's just like, orgasmic kind of conclusion of just everything happening at the same time. You see different things happening on different screens. Sometimes like all of the screens are used in unison. So they're filming the same action, but just all over the place. There's like red, white and blue filters that are happening. I genuinely felt so patriotic to, I'm not French, but I felt like a proud Frenchman by the end of the film. It's incredible and it's genuinely, I'm so glad I saw it in the cinema because it's. it needs to be seen on the largest screen imaginable. It's incredible. And it's like nothing that I've seen before. It's the very definition of like an epic conclusion to a film coming out into these three separate screens. It's amazing. Um, So yeah, it's a real kind of like, it's a film that kind of in scope and scale is as vast as Napoleon's own ambition, um, which is great because it kind of, everything that happens within the film mirrors the character perfectly, which I think is something that's important for these films, especially films that are focusing on one, historical figure one historical character and um, it kind of uses who they were and what they were like to such great effect and abogance napoleon does that incredibly the wild thing just to end on is that this five and a half hour napoleonic epic um abogance's Abelganz originally intended to be part one of a six-part film series and oh um, so what you get in this first five and a half hours is basically like the start of Napoleon's rise to power—you don't get kind of—it so
1: doesn't—it doesn't go into his like exile or
2: anything. Like it that. does. It well. Like, it it does. I can't remember exactly the beat by beat by beat, but it doesn't go right to the very end of Napoleon's life. So he intended it Jeez. to be part one of six. I don't know if the other parts would have maybe been. You imagine yeah. his answer. <laughs> I, I can't. Remember. I wonder if the other parts would have been maybe like one hour,
0: two hours. Um, That's what these studios should be getting on with, isn't it? Not these yeah. fucking bat girl rubbish. Precisely. Um, Let's finish the Napoleon story, shall we? I mean,
2: yeah, precisely. Now, I feel like somebody needs to take on the mantle (laughs) and create the Napoleon cinematic universe that we've all been waiting for. Um, But yeah, weirdly, no one was keen for it, so they're lost, I guess. Um, Yeah, obviously, I'm sure the second I said a silent movie that's five and a half hours long, most people were like, fuck that, that sounds awful. But if that's your kind of thing, you're going to have a great time. And it's really nicely split into parts as well. So, you know, you'd have to watch it all in five and a half hours and take your time with it.
0: Well, that does sound really quite smashing. I'm suitably rallied for a Sunday morning. Brilliant. Well, what a great way to kick us off. Um, I feel like everything after that is going to seem a little bit less epic, isn't it? Um, Bill, what are you going for? <laughs>
1: yeah, 100%. Well, I've, I've gone for the significantly shorter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Significantly, shy. I've watched it in one sitting every time. I think every every Sunday afternoon it's on. Um Ben Hur, uh, 1959, directed by William Wyler, uh, starring Charlton Heston and Jack Hawkins. Uh Now this is yeah very New Testamenty, so not sure what Michael's views, but you know I think this is based in history. There is there is a bit, let's not go into religion. Is there any burning bushes out. in let's this one? Not. Come on, and you're a good Catholic boy like me less less ah. floods um, more, of, still the same amount of violence though um so this is the story of a aristocrat who incurs the wrath of his childhood friend who's now become a Roman tribune and is forced into slavery but harbors thoughts of revenge and getting back to his family um I chose this film because I think it just perfectly encapsulates you know historical epic and I think it's it's was made in the golden time of hollywood and the golden sword and sandals they call it time of where these were just all the rage these were the 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 blockbusters of the day these were the 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 marvel cinematic universe was let's make a historical epic um and it is old hollywood it's magnificent set designs um over 300 sets 300 you just it it staggers me along with location shooting as well um um, and 100 not a hundred costumes, a hundred costume designers they have on this thing. Fucking hell. <laughs> it's insane that uncountable extras. There's no actual number, um, and uncountable cap costumes either. There's no number for that I could find. But that's just that's just the the, the sort of scale we're working at there. Um, it's a pretty low budget, then, yeah. They don't, yeah, pretty low budget shoestring sort of yeah. thing. They really don't make them like this anymore. Um, just the sheer scale is. It's incredible and, and not topped for me because you're seeing the real people there, the crowds there. It just it just it, it really puts you, even though the sets might not look as historically accurate as they are and everything's very sunshiny and everyone's white. Um, it doesn't it doesn't take you out of the time period because you are so in awe of the sheer scale of it. It's also filmed in glorious technicolour real you just want to you just want to eat the screen you want to look it um it's it's beautiful um also you've got uh, for me the epitome of the movie star in charlton heston uh, who is just power he is just power on screen you know um his voice his his body his his jaw his piercing eyes Just fantastic. Um, Up against Jack Hawkins, who's no uh, no slim Jim himself, even Scott. It it just it just emanates from it. And I also say as well. And and it's it's a very religious film. Um, It deals with uh, the story weaves in and out of the New Testament. um, Jesus's life. You know, Ben Hur keeps coming across him um, in quite natural ways, and it's quite a good good way of telling it. Um, You see, kind of like almost like kind of the ordinary um man's um sort of kind of view of of jesus um but it's also it's wonderfully evocative i'm not i'm not religious myself but it is evocative you do feel that that feel of the numinous the wonder of the religious scenes the mystery of of the unknown of god and you know more than anything else it makes a skeptic like me think "Ah, christianity
2: Mm, maybe like i believe in (laughs) charlton he's the only god for me (laughs)
1: oh I'll, I'll i'll worship that but yeah it's the music is is fantastic and the wonder is is there and jesus is handled very tastefully and subtly um i'd say second only to the life of brian in uh their jesus scenes for for how to handle jesus on film uh you know he, i think he needs to be this um slightly mysterious unknown quantity and they, they do that very well it's very respectful now let's get into the good shit the chariot race Holy crap. It's never been bettered. Um, it, and and yeah, you, the, the actual horses, they're going at speed. It's actual wooden chariots on these presumably quite flimsy metal frames and actual guys, stunt um, guys on these chariots. And it's, it's, it's fast. It's really fast. It's really brutal. And it feels dangerous watching it. You know, when a guy gets dragged behind the chariot, you think, yep, probably was. And um, it looks... Awful, um, but that makes it very exciting. It's also, I think, really ahead of its time in that it has no music in this scene um which is rare for this this sort of time period you'd usually have a score over everything and the score for Ben is fantastic but this um moment wireless decided nope I'm gonna just have it just the sounds of the screams the crowd um and the horses and chariots themselves and that's really modern um it puts me in mind of you know the classic car chases French connection um, bullet of this when when the time comes for like I don't know, to get this real visceral feeling in a car chase just drop the score and just go for the sound. And and that's ahead of its time. Also the way it's shot, the the way it's cut, really, really, really modern. And I think most great car chases and 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 race scenes have, have sort of just never really moved much past this template. Um and, and I think even the the most modern audience that sits and watches Marvel films could sit and watch this sequence on the big screen and be like, yeah, Christ, that's Awesome. It's not actually my favourite sequence in terms of action. My favourite sequence is actually on the Roman galley, the slave ship, uh, where you've got this sort of battle of wills between the uh, the Roman uh, uh, general and uh, and Ben Hur, where he sat watching him as he as he pulls the oar, and then for no reason he just decides to uh, start upping the speed by attack speed. And then once it gets to ramming speed, you really know, oh God, this is, this is, this is hardcore. And the music in that, just brilliant, just brilliant. And then the battle itself on the galleys, excellent, excellent. I think it really belies the idea for me, if, if you, you know, a lot of people think of historical epics and they think, oh, it's quite dull, it's dusty, it's boring. I think this film... Really blows that out of the water. I think this is this is a popcorn film. Um, yes, it deals with quite sweeping tracks of history, and you know, don't get much more serious than the New Testament, does it? um But it makes it really fun and really entertaining. It's it's a you know it's a pretty simple story of revenge and you know a guy getting wronged and then coming back and trying to trying to take back what's his, and then. Um, and I think, yeah, it is a it is a popcorn film, but a but a really really enjoyable one. And I don't think it's it's been bettered in terms of sheer entertainment when it comes to historical ethics. Also, those spears they have on the side of their chariot wheels are totally boss, and Greece completely copied that. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's brilliant. It.
0: Oh no, uh, so surely,
1: what uh, Greece? Fully,
0: fully noble.
1: Yeah, I would have thought so. Yeah, I think it's very known. I mean, it's exactly shot for shot. They do the exact mm. same thing. I mean, the, in the in the chariot race, he brings his chariot close to the others to to get those swords in the spokes and flip the thing off. And then, yeah, when Kinnicky's driving that car, the baddie's car has mm. um, has sort of like spikes coming out of the wheels and he goes close. And I think it's yeah, I think I think Greece has completely copied it. It's basically it's Ben-Hur in a leather black leather jacket.
2: I remember the, just going back to Ben-Hur I remember the very first time I saw it because obviously I think growing up kind of like knowing about films and liking films the Chariot Race was always something that was like oh, Ben-Hur, the Chariot Race the Chariot Race is amazing, the Chariot Race I remember watching it for the first time and being like, I wonder how good this Chariot Race is actually going to be and then when it happens you're like, oh shit and then you become the person that's like no, 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 the Chariot Race is incredible in Ben-Hur it's almost like a kind of weird cult that you get into where you don't believe it then you see it and you're like actually I need to tell everyone about how sick this is
1: yeah I think I think exactly the same thing is that I watched it very young one Easter probably um sat there on a Sunday with my mum I think it's one of my mum's favourites and you know early on pretty bored you know just a kid and then suddenly the chariot race comes on I'm like what the fuck is this yeah. oh my god Absolutely loving it. I didn't even want to go and play Grand Theft Auto afterwards. I, like, so I want I'm to play Grand Theft Chariot. Watch that religious historic Grand Theft Chariot, please.
0: Yeah, I have strong memories of this. I don't remember when I first watched it, but it would have been quite young. But I remember having this, um, I think it was like software that came with early Microsoft computers. I don't know if like, it I think it was. Oh, yeah. It was like a sort of forerunner of Wikipedia. Um, and it had like a clip so it had various clips on it and it had a clip of that galley slave ship scene um which i remember watching over and over again and just finding it absolutely enthralling and then seeing that ben hur had like the record at the time because this was pre-titanic and pre-lord of the rings for the most oscar wins it like won 11 oscars Mm. so i thought that naturally must mean that it was the best film ever made Um, (laughs) but yeah um strong strong choice and it's not five and a half hours long so yeah, a little shorter. Yeah. yeah, so this, so my first film. Um, so I've gone for my two choices. I've gone, I've, I've, I've gone for a, a pick of the head and a pick of the heart. Uh, and this is um, yes. uh, from the head. Uh, this is uh, Andre Tarkovsky's second and most epic film, Andre Rublev, uh, from 1966. Most definitely not a popcorn film. Uh, you probably <laughs> probably need rather more sustenance to see you through this film. Um, it's, and I'm also yeah, it's it, moving away from Napoleon and uh, Ben Hur. It's uh, it's not about sweeping battles and and uh, warfare. It's it's just about a a, a painter. <laughs> um, it's uh, a sumptuous art house sweep across the life of Russia's famous icon painter Andrei Rublev. Uh, so it's set in 15th century medieval Russia. It's spread across eight episodes, and it clocks in at around three and a half hours long. Um, but so immersive is it that by the time, but you know, by the end, you you kind of believe you could have gone back in time. It's uh, it's so so richly achieved. It's a film about religious faith and society. Society changing. Uh, the power of art and repressive politics. So it's it's at the set of this turbulent period in Russian history in which there was like continual fighting between rival princes and Tartar invasions um, that would eventually end up solidifying into the rule of the, the Tsars, uh, which would persist until the, the 20th century. As with all Tarkovsky's films, it's bursting with beautiful weighty shots that seem to go on forever. There's lots of deep conversations about philosophical or religious themes uh, and some unforgettable imagery. Um, it's the most famous of which are like this first scene where it shows this f- flight of a rudimentary hot air balloon um, and a later scene that involves the casting of an enormous iron bell. I mean, it's, sort of, it's so rich in symbolism. You sort of feel like you're witnessing like these great leaps of, of human ingenuity and progress. Um, and it's not, but it's not all uh, sort of, Slow and and and, uh, and dialogue rich. There's a there's a fierce raid scene where, <clears throat> where there's lots of yeah quite brutal uh, brutal violence and it culminates in this rather shocking image that you know you kind of once you've seen it you can't unsee it, you know you you've, uh, where there's this the uh, horse that falls down a flight of stairs, um, which is uh, yeah it's one of those scenes that's just sort of ooh, like. That's a very unusual thing to uh, to film. Um, I mean, Tarkovsky loves horses when he's not pushing them downstairs. Um, there's, <laughs> not that one. <laughs> there's, there's horses doing also, you know, they're used in a very, uh, I guess, metaphorical way. I mean, horses swimming, rolling over, all sorts of things. Very beautiful, beautiful animals, shot very nicely. Um, and of course, the grand finale, and I guess this is perhaps... Uh, Took inspiration from uh, the finale of Napoleon, I, I would imagine, but the grand finale is is really sublime as this kind of th- the three hours plus of, of, of black and white suddenly bursts into this transcendent color as the screen is filled with Andrei Rublev's artworks. So you know it's it's so powerful in the way that it, it, it does this. Bearing in mind that you know you've not not seen him paint at all throughout the film. I mean, you know, art is only spoken of as this kind of sort of quasi religious pastime you know it's 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 very uh uh yeah spoken of quite mystically and instead suddenly we're you know we're we're kind of thrust into the right into the onto the canvas almost it kind of tracks over all these details this exuberant color it's uh, really phenomenal um and you get you know you because you've you know you don't really the film doesn't really follow his life chronologically it's not a sort of this happened to him and thus this is why he painted like it's not really like that it's more just you're sort of immersed in his in his world for some three hours and so you get some sort of understanding basically of how and why such art was maybe created out of it rather than just as a simple cause, cause and effect. Uh, if you are going to see it I mean you, you should do so on a, at a cinema if possible um, and just let it wash over you like all Tarkovsky's films it's best if you sort of detach from any expectations of kind of more western films and you know the pace that they maintain and the the beats that they hit, the cues and such like. It's best if you just sort of approach it as a more, I don't know, more, more like an installation, or you know, just experience it, experience it as a like a rich sensory. It's it's just masterful, um, and thoroughly recommend.
1: What about that scene in Borat when that horse falls over at the uh, rodeo? Yeah, that's there. You go.
0: cruelty yeah. <laughs> to horses. <laughs>
2: I like the visual of <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen being letting Andre Rublev wash over him, and he's like, "Now that's a good idea." <laughs> good idea.
0: Right, Sam, your second choice.
2: My second choice um, is Akira Kurosawa's incredible film *Ran*. Um, I absolutely love Ron, despite the fact that it got me done for plagiarism um, at university. I could probably tell this story now in confidence because it's been 12 years and I don't know if anyone from the University of Hull listens to this podcast, but if you do, keep it on the down low. Um,
1: Michael's a double agent.
2: (laughs) Um, When I did a Japanese drama and culture module, our final piece, we had to write an essay and there was loads of titles that were suggested to us. Um, and because I was a real pretentious nerd, I was like, I'd like to write mine about how Rahn and, and its similarities between King Lear. And my lecturer obviously was like, fucking do whatever you want, it's fine. It's nearly the end of the term. You leave, leave? <laughs> can, can you please leave me alone? And in writing it, obviously, it was that classic time at uni when you'd spend like entire nights in the library just drinking energy drinks and regretting every decision you'd made in your life. Um, and I did, did the essay, everything was fine. And then I got a very official letter that said that I would plagiarized a huge chunk of my essay. And what I'd done was in my notes that I'd been taking in my notebook, I'd copied verbatim like a whole paragraph from a book and had just not noted that it was from a book. And then obviously read it back and was like, God, oh, that's a fucking good point, Sam. <laughs> copied that verbatim into my essay. And they were like, this is literally pulled exactly from a book that we have in the library. And I was like, and I think I really got out of trouble because I went to this official hearing um, with my, like, personal tutor or whatever. Went to this hearing, um, and I think I was just so stupid that they were like, he definitely didn't mean to do this. Because I was like, "Uh, uh, uh," and I showed them my notebook, and I was like, "Uh, I just, uh," and they were like, oh, like, you're not a criminal mastermind. You're actually just an idiot. Um, So, yeah, love Ron.
1: Wow, I really enjoyed yeah, that. that was
2: really you something. Idiot. <laughs> so for a good two months, there was a chance that I might not have graduated at the same time as everyone, and that was all because of Akira Kurosawa's Ran. But I still love Akira Kurosawa's Ran. Um, anyway, so directed by the incomparable Akira Kurosawa. Uh, Ran is considered his like final masterpiece, his last quote unquote epic, which he made at 75 years of age, uh, which is absolutely incredible. It was made in 1985. So the story is based around King Lear, one of um, Akira Kurosawa's earlier films. That was kind of one of his big breakouts around the same time as Seven Samurai came out was Throne of Blood, which was his kind of adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth. So this is the second time that he returns to kind of Shakespeare for inspiration, but this time it's his epic retelling of William Shakespeare's King Lear. But much like um, Throne of Blood is, it's interwoven with um, Japanese history. Um, In Ran, it's specifically the history of Japan's 16th century civil wars and the legend of Morikawa, who was a feudal warlord who had um, three sons, as opposed to in King Lear, it's his three daughters. Um, Hidatora, uh, who's the king lear figure in this film he gives up his power and divides his kingdom amongst his three sons and inevitably um absolute turmoil ensues um kurosawa um was a painter before he was a filmmaker and as obviously he's 75 years old he's getting on a little bit and um, he wasn't what he did to kind of like give the idea of what he wanted from the cast and crew was he meticulously drew and painted Thousands of image images to show his team what he wanted Ram to look like. So, if you have a look online, there's these like beautiful like Japanese like traditionally Japanese paintings or like impressionist paintings of these incredible scenes from Ram that he gave to them and was like, "There you go, please now recreate that on 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 the cinema." Um, like with a lot of his films, it's a, just a visual feast, and this one, the scale and the scope of it is like nothing else it's incredible film to see another one that i was very lucky to see in the cinema at some point and it is like michael was saying with um, Andre rubilev a film best scene to just let it all wash over you it's beautiful and obviously based seeing as a lot of the scenes is are literally based on these paintings that he did it is like being in an art gallery at points it's amazing um i was looking up um some various information about this film and a lot of the Somebody compared a lot of the kind of like more pastoral and European quote unquote scenes, almost like compositions that you see in Stanley Kubrick's um, historical epic, Barry Lyndon, which was another one I was quite keen to pick. So nice that they've kind of unintentionally interlinked there. Um, So yeah, the film itself is a kind of like devastating, compelling portrait of like this bloody dynasty's descent into hell. It's a film all about the kind of... um, For an epic, it's a very, very kind of simple story. It's literally this Hidatora character divides his kingdom and shit just fucking kicks off. It's a really like simple film, but told on a grand scale that slowly is allowed to just develop and grow and eke out over the course of three hours. So still not quite as long as Napoleon, but a long one nonetheless. Um, There's a scene, it's quite an iconic scene in the middle of um, Ron that kind of similar ish to um, Ben-Hur's chariot race is a scene that kind of takes place without any dialogue and just almost the opposite it takes the place without any dialogue and is just the sound of it it's this battle scene in the mid move in the middle of the movie where without using a word he manages to convey the magnitude of the loss of the violence and the hauntingly kind of portrayal this kind of descent into madness and um, so it's our Hidatora. he's divided up his kingdom among his children and there's this huge battle where he goes to hide in one of his third castles that he hopes is going to be a kind of his final resting place in the place where he can just fucking chill out for a bit. Um, but two of his sons, Taro and Jiro um, collect their armed forces and strike against Hidatora in this big battle. And it's obviously an incredible battle scene filmed amazingly and looks, is such a fucking sick battle scene. That's not the technical term, but it's incredible. And, um, But in the middle of this, um, we see kind of the characters, just the absolute sense of kind of like loss and destruction and the kind of the, it's an amazing thing to see, like the weight of everything that's happened to them so far just resting on their shoulders. It's kind of got very silent movie vibes by these characters. You just see it all writ large on their faces. Um, So yeah, the film kind of deals with mankind's endless capacity for self-destruction in a way that, obviously has the potential to be quite pretentious and ponderous, but like a lot of his work, it's handled in a very real and very kind of deft way where it never feels pretentious or ponderous at all. It feels very human, very realistic and very natural despite these kind of like big over the top um, characters and stories and scenes. Um, So Ran was his most expensive film at the time and was when it was released, the most expensive Japanese movie ever made. And every aspect of the film is grand, the ideas, the emotions, the aesthetic, and even the movement of the actors. Um, If anyone's seen Throne of Blood, he uses the movement in a kind of very um, Kabuki theater kind of way, which is a traditional Japanese style of theater that kind of overemphasizes movements to create emotions. And he does that again here. It's very pronounced, it's very deliberate. It's kind of indicative of um, a trait or an idea that each character is kind of possessing. And it's just a fascinating film to watch play out. It's one of those films that I think is a great, great director at the height of their powers. And he made a couple of movies after Ron, but Ron is very much his going out on a high point sort of thing. Um, Yeah, again, similar to my Napoleon pick. There might be a lot of people that are like, it's Japanese, it's got subtitles. I might not be bothered, but I can highly recommend. It's an absolute, it's an epic, I think, in the truest sense of the world. And there's... Even if you don't read the subtitles, it's just great to look at. So pretend you're in an art gallery for a bit and have a great time. Um, yeah, it's yeah. Even though it nearly got me banned from uni, I love Ram. It's a great movie.
1: Small price to pay. Small price to pay for it. That's nice a piece.
2: sacrifice that Akira Kurosawa demanded of me. <laughs> I made it.
0: Smashing. Yeah. Um, I can't remember watching that. I don't think I have actually I've seen Throne of oh, Blood.
1: we in for a treat. It's it's a it's a worthy bookend to his his uh, filmography. I'd say. I say, I think it is. It, it just the scale of it, it's bloody impressive. And then yeah, the, to a different way of seeing Shakespeare, and as as you say, like kind of the way he weaves it all in with the the uh, that glorious battle scene is just awesome. Let's see it again
2: yeah watch it with do a double bill with throne of blood and ron and you'll have a shakespearean a japanesely shakespearean wonderful afternoon i
1: also respect you for choosing that over seven samurai um because like i know yeah it's really hard to define historical epic but and i know it's going to sound stupid because magnificent seven's all obviously a remake of the seven samurai but (laughs) seven samurai does feel more like sort of like a a western sort of thing yeah It's, it's more of a I don't know, more, it feels more like an action film, more of a classic um, kind of like kind of last stand sort of thing, rather yeah. than a historical epic. And I suppose it could be a historical epic, but uh, Ran is far more um, fitting, isn't it?
2: I had that same thought where I was kind of like, Seven Samurai is obviously about these, surprise, surprise, Seven Samurai, um, protecting this one small village. So it's a huge story, very small and very contained. Whereas Ran obviously is this... the dismantling of this dynasty which instantly is much more epic so yeah i feel like i could have just talked about every akira kurosawa movie here but unfortunately that's not the the episode isn't sam talks about akira kurosawa for four hours um that's a
1: maybe epic. next time
0: bill where are you going next
1: um well I, I know i mentioned westerns i'm not doing any western because i think westerns are a separate genre i thought you were say <laughs> garbage <laughs> <laughs> yeah the utter bobbins no i think i think there's there's so many of them and there's so many um tropes involved in westerns mm. and they have separated themselves off and this is where like kind of it's interesting because both um epics i've now chosen could i say almost form their own genre themselves and that is you know kind of the roman um sort of films the, the sword and sandal sort of films i mentioned um before so i i'd say going from like ben Hur the classic of the uh, the classics you know from the golden age of hollywood a more modern classic and i do think is a classic is gladiator um 2000 directed by ridley scott starring russell crowe and joaquin phoenix um, this is the story loosely, loosely, loosely based on the uh, Roman Emperor Commodus, who uh, who fought in, uh, in the gladiatorial arenas, brought them back and was strangled to death by his wrestling partner, Narcissus. Um, but this is this um, basically ignores most of that and uh, creates this story about a Roman general who's betrayed and his family murdered by the new emperor. Um, he is forced to become a gladiator. And will have his revenge in this life or the next, which I think's a bit of a cop-out. Yeah, I'll have my revenge unless I die, in which case, we'll see what happens. Um
2: but I say that to everyone that runs.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll get I'll get you after I'm dead, mate. Or I won't. Or I won't. We'll see. Um That doesn't take away the power of it. It's um it's incredible. Um in opposite to um to ben hur this really utilizes um cgi in in a really evocative way in that it's the first time you're able to really see ancient rome with the colosseums with the massive pantheon with the huge statues with the you know we we'd said thousands of extras in in ben hur this is millions of people just out there and and it is it is pretty incredible it's used in the right way ridley scott um is very clever the way he um shoots it in that he makes it all quite misty and grey and and almost like city-like. When you get to Rome, it seems like a completely different place to the um, the. At one point, he's in he's in like kind of Morocco in North Africa. He's in the forests of um, ancient Germania um, to the African colonies, which are all kind of a little bit more. Um, a, Sort of like kind of backwater, there's lots of flies, lots of them um, lots of people like scrabbling around in those places. So it's it's really got a real sense of place, and he uses his tools really wisely there. You know, the the African scenes are um, practical sets, um, and then Rome is this beautiful CGI creation. Um, the cast is sumptuous. Um, Russell Crowe is is magnetic. He is he is all business in this, and he is. He's so driven, he can get away with the classic "My name is Maximus Decimus Aurelius" lines. You just, you're just not going to argue with him. He looks furious. Um, uh, <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix star-making turn. He is so creepy in this, and you really believe it. Like it's, it's generally, genuinely uncomfortable um, when he goes up against Richard Harris, who plays his dad, and and uh, and the betrayal scene, genuinely. Squirm inducing, as is his scenes with his sister, which is just all kinds of wrong. Um, that said, I, I'd be remiss not to not to mention the great Oliver Reed who gives his last performance in this, and we just said uh, Rand was a fitting end to uh, Kurosawa's career. This is a fitting end to Reed's career. He is fantastic as this ex gladiator, full of melancholy um fierceness. He's also very funny and he he really stays with you and then to discover that he died during the filming of this is quite incredible and i think it's a real testament to ridley scott's skill that he was able to um complete uh uh, the the character's arc in a really satisfying way because oliver reed had died before his scenes were completed so it was achieved through body doubles um adr and and um, CGI and and you wouldn't know it's only only since I've went back and rewatched it to be like oh how did they do that that I that I realized and it's 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 wonderfully powerful it adds adds to it um I think the music is absolutely incredible. Um, it's Hans Zimmer, who is obviously brilliant, but he borrow, borrows liberally from Holst and Wagner's music. Um, it's it's absolutely tremendous. You know, it, it 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 brings in the Mars theme, it brings in um you know Wagner's Pantheon themes, and it's it just so wonderfully evocative of ancient Rome. Never bettered in that in that respect. Um that said, it's all mixed up with absolutely brilliant action scenes all of the um the gladiator fights he yeah i think there's um there's four in total um in the in the arenas that steadily go up in levels it's like a computer game um you know and he, and, and really scott constantly brings in new just fun stuff so the first fight uh, russell crowe is chained to a partner which adds an interesting dynamic the second he's um in there and there's 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 chariots that come around they have to work together to to um to fight off these these chariots that are rushing around that also have spears on their spokes again copied from ben Hur. um and then the third one there is um he just throws in some tigers why the hell not and um again shot really interestingly i think they used real tigers back when you could use real tigers and then comped in russell crowe so it looks like they actually were savaging you um it, it really really exciting and i think for it really brought back the historical epic. And um, you think of the the film um, scope back in two thousand. You had Matrix and whatnot coming out. It, historical epics weren't really the the thing. This this brought them back in a big way. And and Ridley Scott was a bit of a master at this point. I think it's I think it's one of his best films. And I think it goes to show that you can use modern technology to um, to just move historical epics forward. Heavily enjoyed it. And I still do, I think it yeah, mind blowing when it first came out. And um, so that is Gladiator. Top choice. Top choice.
2: I feel like I, I watched Gladiator when I was far too young to really kind of be watching Gladiator. I have very vivid memories of sitting in like I think family friends' front room, they're like, Oh, we'll stick a film on and it was Gladiator, and was being like, I don't think I should be watching this. And I feel like this is maybe a bit much, <laughs> but Probably why I still am a bit scared of Russell Crowe to this
1: day. Well, you'd be wise to be. Um, mm. I think. I think it's yeah. It's a it's a wise warning, um, Scott. You should be aware of Russell Crowe and tigers
0: <laughs> and Oliver Reed.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back in the bar, definitely.
0: Died, challenging some Maltese men to a drink drinking contest. <laughs> didn't
1: he? he did indeed. Yeah, I think he won that drinking well,
0: contest. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Cost? But at cost? Yes. Anyway. Um, right. Okay. Well, I'm going to round us off with my second choice, uh, which I uh, I said before, Andre Rubelov, that I was going with uh, two choices, from one from the head and one from the heart. And this is most definitely from the heart, uh, my, my brave heart. Uh, brave heart. Um, <laughs> 1995.
1: You've been waiting. You've been waiting. Oh, that was it. beautiful. Um,
0: that was beautiful. I appreciate this it's probably going to be a controversial choice it does divide opinion this film um and uh but i mean you know just from what you were saying there about gladiator and how it brought back historical epics i mean yeah i think you could say that but i don't i think gladiator built on the success uh and the appeal that braveheart five years earlier i think probably yeah that's probably William. that's probably fair. um i mean you know and the fact that it won five Oscars, including Best Picture, is often held up as a like, uh, oh, look how wrong the Oscars can get it sometimes. Um, but, <laughs> you know, to these naysayers, I say in the words of Brendan Gleeson, I will crush you like a worm. Uh, rhetorically, of course, uh, not advocating violence. Um, Braveheart is a r- rurally entertaining historical epic uh, in every sense of the word, I think. And, I, you know, Mel Gibson is obviously a bit of a problematic individual these days, um, but there is no denying the the passion and the commitment he brings to this film. He both directs and stars as folk hero William Wallace, who takes the battle with the glorious sons of Scotland against the dastardly English. Um, so I say, you know, this is a film of the heart. I mean, I first watched this, probably like you, Sam, with Gladiator, probably far too young, uh, probably about. 11 or 12 and was just captivated by it and you know i've watched it many times over the years it never fails to just provide pure entertainment yes there is plenty in it to be critical about so let's just briefly address the historical inaccuracies head-on uh so most obvious of which the scots didn't actually start wearing kilts until the early 18th century so mel gibson's about 500 years too early um uh, and there are numerous liberties taken with both who William Wallace was the you know, Gibson portrays him in this film as this sort of humble farmer who is radicalised there's no evidence to suggest that he was actually quite a, quite a well-to-do chap um, and also the facts of certain events as well and the, the chronology um, it, for example the whole sort of side plot involving Sophie Marceau, Marceau's French princess that William Wallace has a bit of a fling with so in reality she's about 7 years old
1: um, so he didn't. He didn't have a fling with
0: her. A... He didn't have a fling with her. No, I mean it, that that whole French princess aspect is one of the weakest aspects of the film. I don't think it should have been bothered with it. It's just pure kind of oh, you've got to, we've got to insert some sort of romantic angle to this. Uh, it's a real shame. But anyway, that these sins can and should be forgiven by because. It, you know there's just some of the most stirring and immersive battle scenes i think that have ever been filmed i think the staging and the direction of it is masterful in the way that it just takes you right into the heart of the battle and there's no holds barred here there's no cgi whatsoever and as a result it's just incredibly realistic and effective i mean it really does capture the brutality and the ferociousness of these of these fights i mean they're sweaty and bloody and and muddy i mean it's just it looks absolutely awful um it's got a great supporting cast as well. So, you know, who provides a valuable count- counterweight to Mel Gibson's performance, which, I mean, you know, he's going full 110%, quite overwrought at times. He's absolutely giving it everything, which is fair enough. You know, go for it. But, you know, with Brendan Gleeson and Catherine McCormack and Patrick Mahoon as the King Edward Longshanks, they, you know, they really provide some excellent ballast. Uh as you were saying, Bill, the you know the Hans Zimmer score for Gladiator, the music by James Horner is just one of the very best original scores. I think it's it's so powerful the way it uses kind of traditional sort of um, Celtic instruments. I mean, actually, sort of more Irish instruments, but nevertheless, they sound evocative of the time. Um, <laughs> You know it just it's so so good i mean i just think of the scene where the english cavalry are charging towards the scottish army and the music is just completely unhinged <laughs> but also you know quite deft and uh, and touching at times as well but also as well you know you made me think when you said about the ben-hur and the way that there's no music, that it doesn't use music at all during the battle scenes the same is true here of of, of braveheart you know the it, it strips out music during the battles and just leaves this kind of crunching and bashing and just yeah, really adds to the uh, the impact of those those fight scenes. So yeah, I would I challenge anyone to watch Braveheart and not be stirred in some way. I mean, know the, yeah, there's the famous Sons of Scotland pre-battle speech from Gibson on horseback or the the execution scene. I mean, it is hairs on the back of the neck uh, for me at least. Uh, it's immensely powerful. And its impact on popular culture can hardly be denied. I mean, some of the images are just instantly recognisable, you know, and its debatable impact on, you know, uh, the cause of Scottish independence uh, is, uh, yeah, also (laughs) significant, according to some people. So historically inaccurate, yes, but it's wonderfully epic entertainment. So, yeah, I will go to bat for Braveheart any day of the week.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're totally right. Especially when you say about like the battle scenes. I don't think without Braveheart, you wouldn't have Game of Thrones, for example, anything like that. I just I always remember like the visceral scenes of it makes um, bows and arrows truly, truly terrifying. In, uh, when they're bringing the shield. The sounds you of just, them. You just really, yeah, punching through. It just feels like, oh, my God, this would be awful. Mm-hmm. Whereas you'd seen, like, kind of um, battles in the past in in historical films, and they're all quite clean cut, and people die, and, oh, and they fall over, whereas this, you really get the punch, and it's the sound design, and as you say, the mud, and just the... It's just not glamorous at all, and it looks... I think I believe it was filmed in Ireland, was it? Mm. It looks like it was yeah. and you can tell everyone's cold, you can tell as you say everyone's miserable, and even though you know they're fighting for glory and freedom, it looks awful and and I, I, that certainly for me, that was my first experience of seeing a film like that and just thinking, oh my goodness me that's 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 horrible um, and yeah, it really stays with you and and yeah, I know the historical inaccuracies, but as you say. When he's there screaming freedom, you can't help but be be uh, wrapped up in it. That's me as a proud Englishman as well, <laughs> and uh, I know Sam's Sam's the only it's... Scotsman here. And I look at him; he's he's, he's painted half <laughs> his face blue, listener. Uh, he is mm-hmm. taking his trousers off. I'm wearing his, a kilt, yeah, but obviously so you yeah. can. Um, but yeah, I'd like to know this proud I'd Scotsman. I've being... got my
2: sparrow. It's quite appropriate that you said that a lot of the images and a lot of the moments in Braveheart are very. Instantly recognizable because um I realised the other day that I've actually never seen Braveheart, but I thought I had <laughs> I seen it because it. <laughs> because I'm so aware of like all of the the beats and the moments and the they'll take our freedom and all that jazz. And um, I thought I had seen it, and then I started watching it because I think it's on Disney Plus. I started watching it the other day, and I was like, nope, never seen this, never seen this at all. I have seen the um episode of The Simpsons that Mel Gibson's in though, uh, where they talk about Braveheart, so. You know, kind of seen it. Anyway, uh, great choice, That's, people. Thank uh, you. <laughs>
0: That's quite a quite a revelation. Well, you need to remedy that immediately.
1: You, do, you really do.
2: What can I say? I'm an edgy man, aren't I? Some of some of some of us had things to do. Rather you know, than watching Braveheart,
1: you remind me of Robert the Bruce teaming up with the English. <laughs> disgusting. That betrayed, is a reference I only.
2: That is a reference I only vaguely understand. <laughs> I was too busy watching silent movies. Come on, give <laughs> me some slack.
1: Yes. Yeah,
0: sorry. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, most definitely isn't silent. This film. No. Mel Gibson <laughs> screaming is like every opportunity. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yes, the antithesis. You really won't enjoy it. It's a lot of shouting. <laughs> it's the opposite of silence, isn't it?
0: Fact, imagine watching Braveheart on silent with just the subtitles. <laughs> clang, clang,
2: smash, clang, screaming
0: yeah. Well, there we go. Um, let's before we close out. Let's just go around and is there any <clears throat> other film you just wanted to give an honourable mention to that uh, you think are well deserving of being uh, kind of highlighted in this our historical epics episode, Sam?
2: I mean to be fair there's quite a few um to be fair cutting saying that we couldn't do anything 20th century cut out a lot for me as well um but there's definitely so many barry Lyndon. i've already kind of mentioned seven samurai i've already mentioned um the one thing i just wanted to kind of give a special nod to um as a more kind of recent one and a slightly different take on the kind of historical epic um, and it's uh lin-manuel miranda's uh hamilton the kind of iconic, you know, zeitgeist Broadway musical that you can watch on Disney Plus again, god, I'm talking about Disney Plus loads today, um, yeah which again, in a similar vein, sort of Napoleon is just an absolute fantastic portrayal of one individual and their impact on society, obviously, um, for those of you that don't know, it's about Hamilton's the story of America's foremost founding father, Alexander Hamilton um, and his kind of life and battles and the forging of the making of America and so forth. And uh, I just, yeah, I think it's a fantastic kind of, a fantastically unique historical epic that obviously is unlike anything else that we've kind of covered today.
0: Excellent. Bill? Yeah, I, I, I,
1: as I said, like our um, our self-imposed um, limits really did hit me of like how many historical epics I think about. They're actually fairly modern times, like Dr. Zhivago, um, fantastic sweeping epic. I was like, oh, too modern. Lawrence of Arabia, um, mm. Lawrence of Arabia, yeah, oh. which is probably my favourite, but again, too, far too modern, you know, motorbikes and whatnot. Um, so that was thrown out. Um, I've got a real soft spot for Last of the Mohicans. Um, I think that's a fantastic film. Michael Mann, um, Daniel Day Lewis, and I think it's it, it's mainly brilliant just for the last um, sort of fifteen minute sequence, which is just so so um, full of tragedy and and sadness, but also mixed in with this. Absolutely fantastic score as they run up the mountain. Really, really beautiful film and and dealing with um a a tough time in history. A lot of a lot of the films um talk about it's kind of like cut and dry good and baddies, you know, like kind of um the, the Ben uh, Ben Hur, obviously, um okay. Gladiator, um and and um and Braveheart. There's obvious goodies and baddies. Last and he can that because it's the French british war which is two colonial forces fighting within um america and then you've got the natives there you know Magua's tribe and, and the mohicans that sort of brought into this conflict through no fault of their own so that's an interesting one in there. it tells this this classic love story against that backdrop and doesn't pull any punches it doesn't um it doesn't try and shade things um any any way so yeah really really good film that one so i was sad to leave that one out but yeah apart from that we just um all my historical epics were Set in the 80s, it seems.
0: Yeah, I
2: mean, just... <laughs> Turns out we're just a bunch of
0: modern lads, aren't
1: we?
0: I also realise you can't have Battleship Potemkin either.
2: No, no. Yeah, gutted to miss Battleship. What's wrong with
1: us?
0: Um, I So yeah, I, I just want to give a quick mention to uh, the Vikings from 1958. So it's from that yes. sword and sandals period that you were talking about of old Hollywood. Uh, directed by Richard Fleischer. A proper Saturday afternoon epic swashbuckling Vikings. Either waging war on each other or raucously living it up with flagons of ale and hunks of meat. Um, <laughs> stars Kurt Douglas, obviously, you know, another uh, uh, star of Spartacus as well, which was another one we could have included. Oh, yeah. uh, Tony Curtis, Janet Lee, Ernest Baldwin. So, what a top top class cast there. Um, sumptuous Technicolor the colour as well, as with Ben Hur. Great locations. They use the Nordic Fjords very well. Uh, and yeah, it seems like there was no expense spared on the longboats and all the all the regalia. So yeah, I've fond memories of watching the Vikings.
2: Whenever I see any film that Kirk Douglas is in, especially like from the past, I just cannot get my head around the fact that like he looked like that in the fifties and he what died like a year ago, two years ago. Like, <laughs> yeah. Insane! Like the the, the the longevity of Kirk Douglas is
1: outrageous. He was a strapping gent, um, but yeah, love love the Vikings. Love the axe throwing scene. Oh, lob of those axes into the door. Um, and you talk about glorious technicolour. None more so shown when that is it. A raven rips out his eye or something. Mm. What? What he gets his eyes stabbed out or something? Yeah. You can really see that bright red paint uh, yeah. gushing <laughs> out. Um, yeah, brilliant, brilliant is the Vikings. Also, is it weird in the Vikings because he doesn't have a beard, does he? No. None of them have mm. no. They're all clean-shaven, looking like 50s matinee. Oh, yeah, the proper... Roman in a pillaging there. It's it's not the Northmen, is it? <laughs>
2: yeah, Clean, clean-cut Vikings only,
1: please. It's clean-cut Vikings with Gillette razors. Fantastic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there we go. Uh, we've reached the end of our Creaky Chair Guide to Historical Epics. Uh, a whole array of magnificent, educative, some educative and some... Not. <laughs> no, it's not. Best, to,
1: best don't, to read a book yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah but do don't whatever research. you do.
0: Plagiarise it. Uh, <sighs> your, yeah, be careful with plagiarism, yeah. everyone. Yeah, make sure it. you mark, mark, you mark
2: your notes things. very
1: efficiently, guys. Really, yeah, really referencing your uh, bibliography.
0: Um, very quickly, any just absolute stinkers that you can think of? I remember being very bored by Troy, the Brad Pitt film, uh, but uh, I don't know. I can't remember much about it.
2: I feel like historical epics yeah. for me are one of those films. That like I, I think that straight into myth, though, doesn't it?
0: I feel like historical
2: epics for me are one of those films that, like, I don't normally seek out unless they've been getting really good press. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a genre that I totally would go and see anything in that field. So I feel like I've almost I avoid them more than go to see them. But I remember being quite right. bored by three hundred.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah the 300's an interesting one isn't it, it um yeah uh, what was that what was that pesh one with um Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise oh Far and Away that was bad that was really bad <laughs> I've never even heard oh, of it's, I, I think for good reason like it's set in like uh the 1800s and it's like the first um Irish emigrants emigrating over to America and it's, it's terrible. I think it's really terrible. Um, I do remember watching a bit of it just thinking, goodness me, Tom, you need to throw yourself out of more planes, mate. Maybe that's what he's doing. Goodness, he's just trying to, trying to get rid of the memory of that just by going to increasingly higher stratospheres of jumping yeah. out of stuff. But yeah, that's that's a
0: dog shit one. Right. Well, well, there we go. Let's end it there. <laughs> um... Thank you all very much for listening. Uh, We'll be back with you very soon uh, to talk about uh, either Elvis or the new Jordan Peele film, Nope, uh, whichever we get around to, I guess. So, yeah, thanks very much indeed for listening. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Sam. Speak to you later.
1: Pleasure as always. I'll have my revenge in this life or or maybe the next. We'll see.
2: See what happens. See what your schedule is looking like.
1: Yeah, yeah. Busy week.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Creaky Chair Film Podcast. If you like what you heard, it'd mean the world to us if you told someone about the show. Tell them about it even if you hated it. Or even if you just felt really apathetic about it. Yeah, there's no such thing as bad press.
1: If you can leave us a review on wherever you're listening, that'd be amazing.
0: And don't forget, we're on all of the social media things. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, Bebo, MSN Messenger.
1: And that's at CreakyChairPod on Instagram and at CreakyChair on Twitter.
0: And if you search Creaky Chair Film Podcast on Facebook, you'll find us there too. You can even email us at creakychairfilmpodcast at gmail.com if you want to send us your essay about how much we were well out of order with The Ice Road.